0: Hi, everybody. Brown here. Just wanted to give a little introduction to this episode to say that, for some reason, ContraTenor's microphone was doing something weird throughout this episode. It kind of sounds like a little glitch every minute or two, so if you can't deal with the audio, we understand. But I also happen to ask ContraTenor to get a real podcast microphone just by happenstance before we started recording this episode so hopefully next time this won't happen and i hope you enjoy the episode all right welcome to window gazing podcast podcast where two tiktokers try to say on the same subject uh today we have a bonus episode for you and uh our bonus episode is just on what books we like what books we would recommend (laughs) um this podcast topic uh, comes from an early conversation, one of our earliest conversations that we had, which is you reached out to me and you're like, you know, marketing. I think I want to suggest books for people. And I was like, so I think you can make that a business, but I think you would have to have lots and lots of followers and like have some sort of Amazon storefront or something where you suggest the books.
1: Yeah. This was when I was like, I have all these followers. What do I do with this? That's not Mm -hmm. humiliating. It doesn't show my whole ass as far as like monetizing a community that's largely built on our mutual disdain for things like monetizing TikTok. So yep. Yeah. So I was like, I because I thought, well, the nicest thing to do would obviously be to have like a storefront sort of thing. And I just throw in books that I like in there, you know, because When my account got really big, and I'm sure you have this too, because you mentioned earlier, this is a thing. People come out, they're like, what books do you read? What do you like? What do you like? What's your favorite book? And like, this is not a question I get in real life. And Mm -hmm. I would find myself like truly stumped because I don't think in terms of favorites, right? Like there are books that are deeply meaningful to me, but I don't know that I would say that like they're the best book out there, but they're meaningful to me.
0: Something that I like, people ask me what therapy books I would suggest and what therapy books like I would suggest specifically for like intellectualizing your emotions or therapy books on um survival mode. And um I don't know. I definitely have those suggestions. I wanted to just do a top five with you. And I know you have like cool stories for each one. I'm not going to make you choose a top book. I could not choose a top book when I was looking at my books. I will say what's cool about my books list. I feel like they're fairly unknown books and they're not hmm. books that I I hear recommended often. So apparently my taste is just like kind of indie or whatever. Um so yeah, what is your first book?
1: All right, I get to go first. Okay. Yes. Uh well, I think instead of going in order of Favorites. I'll go in sort of like a rough chronological order. So mm. um, I will say that the first book that sort of opened up the idea of what literature could be like really expanded it out of the sort of uh, box that I had for it in my head, and I think a lot of kids are this way you know, you go through school and you're like forced to read a certain number of books. And like, a, you, I don't know if that, like it's a cliche like at, at grade eight English, you read a separate piece and we literally read a separate piece in grade eight English which is like the classic sort of like, this is what a novel is, here are the elements of a novel. But anyway, I read um, in my last year of high school and in Ontario at the time we had something called OAC which was like a grade 13, we had an extra year. And we were allowed to choose our own book. We had to do a whole writing project but we, we had the freedom to choose the book we were going to read. So I, I was really into Kafka at that point, like just reading about him and finding it really interesting. So, uh, so I decided to read, uh, the castle right now, when everyone talks about Kafka, they talk about Gregor Samsa and, um, uh, they talk about, um, you know, the trial, the trial is obviously like the template for, you know, the, the sort of term kafka-esque because someone being on trial for something they don't really understand but like the castle the castle is like the trial on on steroids because um you know the prose is just it's just wall-to-wall prose and it's so confusing Mm. and he's like trying he's like dealing with this bureaucracy and he's trying to find the center of it all and he has to go through all these different layers and the reason why that book really blew me away is because it was the experience of like slogging through this prose was uh, actually creating the sense of frustration that the character himself was going through. Uh, I think in, in he's Joseph K. in The Trial, but he's just K. in The Castle. Uh, and I just, I remember getting to this point where like, this book is insane. Like, it's just, it's just endless and there's nothing happening. It's not developing. He's not getting anywhere. <laughs> and then I had this like crystalline moment of like, oh, that's what Kafka is doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, he's putting you in this position. And so um can you
0: define can you define for me when when someone says kafka-esque what do they mean so
1: traditionally i mean the way that i use it is like kafka-esque is when you're in a situation usually involving dealing with a bureaucracy or any sort of like large institution and uh the rules and the rationale and the reasoning for the institution is completely opaque And you're dealing with one person after another, and they're telling you conflicting things, and you have to like, and there's a feeling that you're sort of climbing this ladder to get to the sort of place that you need to be to, so it's usually when we talk about Kafkaesque, that's what we're talking about, you know, and the Mm -hmm. trial is usually the most famous example, because it's usually meant in a more political pejorative sense, like you know cuz literally on the trial he's on trial for some crime he doesn't even know what he committed mm-hmm. um and so it's like ooh it's like sort of used as orwellian but they're not quite the same thing to me like kafka-esque is like it's not necessarily the a state abusing its power it's literally a bureaucracy that is so um labyrinthine and inscrutable that you, you uh that you, the power itself doesn't even quite know why it's persecuted, persecuting persecuting oh. you anyway I'm not gonna do this book justice on here, but I just remember that was like the light bulb going off in my head in terms of like, what was possible through fiction, that fiction didn't Mm -hmm. have to follow this formula, that the form of prose itself could be part of the content of the novel. Anyway, it was just really exciting. And I remember thinking, I went through this like period of hating the book to falling completely in love with it at the end. And and it didn't even end because he didn't finish it. So
0: Hmm. yeah which anyway. book that that strikes me as such a creative um limb to walk out on to like i'm going to frustrate my readers that's what i'm going to go for um do you have a an idea of like how many novels kafka had written by the time the castle was written was it like the last one because he didn't finish it
1: um no i i mean i would probably get this wrong like i know his famous things uh like um uh you know, the one where he turns into a bug, which I can't remember. And then America, which is like his really dreamlike novel of like his interpretation as European of of what America would be like. Um, But uh, um, the thing is with Kafka is he was notoriously hated his own work and like constantly threw it into the fire and like had to be like, he had this very tumultuous relationship with his editor, Max Brode and his amazing letters back and forth between Kafka and Max Brode about like, Max sort of begging him not to destroy everything and, and Kafka just finding he just would get, so he would, he, you know, I, th- this is not an author who is like, I love writing, I love the process. Mm. Like he was not, not like that at all. Um, and I think that's also because he was so iconoclastic and so unique, uh, even to this day, you know, there's there's very few authors who can uh, approach that sort of level of absurdity
0: mm. um
1: and, and be so true to his own form. Uh, mm. And I think a lot of people credit Max for saving Kafka from his own excesses in some ways um but yeah he was not a novelist out there to be loved so it's not surprising that that the castle for example is a is a difficult read
0: mm-hmm. this is gonna be a really fun episode I can tell because I know so little about classic literature um oh, no. pretty much everything <laughs> you're gonna say is gonna be new to me and so I'll be able to ask you questions that are just like in like, 101 sorts of questions which i think is going to be fun um yeah so my book my first book that i want to talk about yeah um chronological would be fun i think so the first book that i encountered on this list is the book sacred economics by charles eisenstein um he is not a well-known writer i don't know if he's any more well-known now Um, the book is a very thick book and I can't remember who encouraged me to read it. Uh, and it was written in 2008. I probably read it in like 2010. So I'm 18, um, reading this book and I was so floored by it. Um, it was so spiritual and it speaks to, the sacred parts of money. It speaks to the gift economy. It talks about um, mutual aid to some extent. It talks about how um, money should be biodegradable, essentially, and we are operating um, in a way that's not very spiritual with our money because our money doesn't degrade. It can be piled up and piled up, and, and that's not of the natural world. That's a very unnatural way to store energy um, any energy mm. that you try to store will always degrade which is g- a good process because it creates flow in the system um and yeah this book is unlike any other book that i've read i've read several other books from him and you can see his spiritual journey continuing um, as he goes along and like he reforms some of his ideas um, but his, the the book is also a little bit like David Graeber's Debt, where he's describing the way that the monetary system works. And I was like, who is this guy? Um, what are his qualifications? He's like a construction worker. He has like no qualifications, um, which I kind of love in a person because I'm just like, I, I don't know. I kind of love people who are just like off the wall. They came out of nowhere and they don't have any qualifications, like a very... Um, uh, I don't want to say anarchist but I'm I'm just all for like um unspecialized people having a voice in our collective. So um that book hit me on a spiritual level before I had gone through any of my spiritual awakening and had any spiritual experiences and I think that it could be similarly um incisive to that spiritual place in people. Um hmm. And anyone who's interested in community, in uh, sustainability, in um, hating capitalism, I think will love that book. And um, yeah, it was written before most of the books on this stuff. Um, We love to talk about it now. It was not. It was not in vogue to talk about it back then.
1: Well, it's interesting. It came out in two thousand eight, which is you know a a, a large global uh, crisis of faith in you know, pun intended in, in, uh, in global, you know, global capitalism. So, yes. Um, so this is very curious to me. So what, so his, how does he mesh economics and, and spirituality? Like what's the, what's the core thesis here? It's, it's interesting. You saw a sacred economy. That's an, an interesting idea to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that it is money should be respected in a way that there is no reverence in our money there is no gratitude in our money and we should create systems that respect money and respect people um it and it speaks already understanding the folly of capitalism it really doesn't like say well here's why capitalism is bad it's not interested in that it just says like our fundamental system of the way that we issue credit etc is broken because it's not operating of the natural world. Um, Does that Mm. answer that question?
1: I think so. It answers it enough that I'm curious to read the book now. So that's, that's job done, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I haven't read it in several years. And so maybe I'm missing some of the book. I do remember towards the end of the book, he does not do a very good job of like, how are we going to solve this problem? He is more uh, that, you know, every author, every nonfiction author has, their part to play and i think his part to play is like here is the the grand architecture that is going wrong here is the big picture um but he doesn't do so well with the minutiae so i think that's for other authors to comment on mm, okay. um he's not a solutions guy but he will help you understand the basis of the problem um yeah yeah what's your next I, book all
1: right I'll, my next one I promise these won't all be fiction. By the way, this is, you're gonna like give these brilliant. Non-fiction. Mine are all but, nonfiction, uh, this, so. Oh, okay, cool. I do have a couple nonfictions in here. I think at least one. <laughs> um, so th- this book, I uh, this is kind of like a contra contratenor deep cut because it's like um, I don't want to alienate our audience, but this is like the most spiritual I think of the books that I'm going to mention, and it's it's a fiction. So it's um, it's a collected short stories of Flannery O'Connor. And I have it stacked up here somewhere um and so flannery o'connor is this very famous uh writer who lived in the south i guess in the 40s and 50s and um she was uh, a very devout roman catholic um but she also had you know she had a lifelong struggle with lupus which ultimately took her life at a at a relatively young age um and uh, i read her in university because i took this catholic studies minor and so this is where the deep cut part comes from because my dad is a he's not catholic but he's an anglican priest but he's like what they call a high anglican so this is like an anglican who's very sympathetic to sort of old school catholic liturgy so like incense and Mm -hmm. focus on transubstantiation and all this sort of interesting stuff and so, like, that was like, you know, I, that back when I was in 1920 uh, years old, that stuff had a pretty strong influence on me, right? And I was really fascinated by the sort of relationship between sort of a more mystic Catholicism and literature. And um, and I think the interesting thing about Christianity, speaking objectively, I'm no longer, you know, I'm not no longer really actively Christian, but I think the interesting thing about you know, Catholic ideas is, and a lot of this is liberal Catholicism. This is like not hardcore conservative Catholicism, but it's just the importance of the idea of the incarnation, right? Which is Hmm. like, what does it mean for a God to be a human being, you know? Mm. And uh, what does that say about creation? And there's like a very rich uh, Aristotelian, Thomas Aquinas tradition of like seeing the importance of the incarnation is like that the messiness of the physical world is good and sacred, right? Mm -hmm. And that the grotesque and um and the ugly is really a big part of that. And that's what Flannery O'Connor's short stories really celebrate is this like she's so so the, the epithet that's always used for her is southern gothic. Mm-hmm. And um and that's sort of sort of but I find that actually limits the expanse of her of her storytelling. But she tells these really horrible <laughs> tales of like these racist, screwed up uh, country bumpkin people in the south. And Manages to make them these very, very beautiful and important and relevant, and I mean really relevant uh, mm. spiritual metaphors that are sort of deep seated in her mm. vision of Catholicism and its focus on the incarnation. Right. Um, so this is like a really preview. Like you really have to read her work to sort of get what I'm talking about. And there's like been a lot written about Flannery O'Connor and a lot of new interest in her. But um, uh, but I remember at the time I. Uh, started reading her because I was taking this class and I remember one of the connections that my professor at the time talked about was that there's this thing, there's really, there's this important Latin word, right? And that's the root word of monster. So hmm. when we think of monsters, we think of horrible, grotesque things, but uh, the, the root of monster is actually monstrare, which which in Latin means to show, to demonstrate, to mm-hmm. to give a, an example of. and um, uh, And so... You know, there's there's this old Catholic tradition of like grotesque people, monsters, literally uh, showing something about the truth of the divine, right? And so this is the whole spirit of Flannery O'Connor's literature. Mm-hmm. So, um, so those stories, like there's a couple of them. Like there's one about this four-year-old who lives in this abusive home, and he goes swimming and drowns in this river, and it's really sad and macabre, but it's actually a brilliant metaphor for baptism not necessarily as the spiritually liberating thing that it's seen in a lot of christian churches but this like uh this shocking introduction to the uh to the divine the otherness of the divine right so anyway i could go on and on i could give like a a really shitty phd lecture on why i love the the, those short stories but they're super super important to me because of what they meant to me in that time of my life so Mm -hmm.
0: yeah Flannery o'connor That's really beautiful, Um, and that makes me want to read it as someone who is not familiar with any of those topics or that author. I've literally heard the name. Um, I love uh, stuff that is religiously affiliated that speaks to the messiness of humans without making it sinful, um, but saying that our humanity is all-encompassing and we can embrace all sides of the human. I really love that messaging. And I think it's something that has been lost in a lot of modern Christian doctrine. They've kind of pushed it to, um, you know, God is this uh, superhuman being and every human is sinful and they should just always be trying to be better, just be better, as better as you can be. Uh, We were talking about that in Mormonism last night of all things. Um, And now and then um, on a documentary, I'll, they'll be interviewing a Catholic priest and he just, I'm thinking of one in particular, but I've seen, there've been a few where you're like, wow, you seem really spiritual and really free in a way that most religious people are not. I'm, And I'm always surprised to see uh, religiously affiliated people who have found spiritual freedom and have found self-acceptance because it could be really hard in those uh, systems and i certainly couldn't find yeah i mean it in those systems
1: like in the american context there used to be a rich tradition of that right like if you think of the writings of thomas merton you know famous for his biography seven story mountain but i think he has a book called the uh uh the new spirit of contemplation or whatever and it's it's yeah it's this uh, it's a very joyful book but it's also mm. you know there's something it's this interesting thing where people criticize Catholics for being down on humanity, but like, I think there's, I think we all understand there's a fundamental truth to that, right? That like that our human systems are flawed and broken and that there's like a, there's like a fundamental uh, sort of, I don't know how to describe this, but there's just, you know, at at the heart of every institution, no matter how well-meaning, there's like this human rot that's involved. And I think that sort of, I think that's, you know, an interesting aspect of some of the, some, some Catholic writers that really get it at the heart of that, you know, and Flannery O'Connor is certainly one of them. Um, Anyway, yeah, so that's my, that's my second one.
0: Yeah, human, human rot exists in all um, organizations of all kinds. Try to make your organization last a thousand years, you're gonna have a lot of, like, just rot.
1: (laughs) So, yeah yeah and it's also you know that's not the same thing as like mea culpa mea culpa and like this sort of classic scorsese you know to be a catholic is to be self-hating you know guilty Mm. all the time certainly there is an element of that there is like a self-hating you know torture porn addicted element of catholic catholicism that is worth you know critically investigating but it's also you know at its best it's an it's an understanding of, of you know the sort of twin nature of human human nature, uh, itself, right. Mm-hmm. That there's, um, you know, there's an element of us that's has one foot in divine and one foot here, you know? So again, these are not ideas I've entertained recently in my life, but they were once once very important to me. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Um, my next book would be, uh, in chronological order, tiny, beautiful things by Cheryl Strayed. Um, Cheryl Strayed's most famous novel is Wild, of course. Um, Tiny Beautiful Things is a collection of advice columns from her time as um, Dear Sugar, which was like an online advice column. People would write in, hey, I'm having trouble in my relationship. Hey, I'm so ugly. Nobody will date me. Um, And she just has these really beautiful, wise, um, just life advices that, um, you know, Cheryl Strait has had like a lot of different experiences in her life. And she's able to speak about love in a way that's just so honest. And the book's not only about love, like there's addiction and talking about financial debt and going to college and all these things. Um, she pulls from her life experience, but I really felt like I got to know the author and she made me feel, um, allowed to be myself in a way that nothing else had at that time and um, all these books on my list are really um, books that I come back to time and time again in my life Um, and I share them with other people. The uh, audiobook for Tiny Beautiful Things is um, she reads the audiobook and so you can hear her read it in her own words which is also really beautiful Um, and I have nothing else to say about it except it's a wonderful book. Hmm.
1: I wish I had a good follow-up to that
0: (laughs) that's okay tiny beautiful things by Cheryl Strayed better than wild I thought um what's your next book
1: um well I'll I'll go into nonfiction now just because I'm trying to keep it chronological I feel like I feel like I have to balance because I could do fiction I could do five books of fiction and that's not really it's not really true or fair but uh I'll do uh, City of Courts by uh, Mike Davis, who is a uh, very famous working class leftist writer. Um, and uh, that was not the first book of his that I wrote. The first book of his, I can't even remember the title, but it was it was mind-blowing. It was all about climate change and climate disasters and the sort of uh, global sort of ignorance. And and his focus was California or whatever, sort of like the archetypical state of of like People who build in spite of like the clear changes or clear possibility of disaster. Um,
0: when was anyway, the city
1: of courts? Is city of courts? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was like 1998, it's on mm-hmm. my shelf, I can, I can find out anyway. So it's in the 90s, I'm pretty sure. Um, but um, it's all about the history of Los Angeles. Uh, and even though that sounds really like particular and like why would you be interested in the history of Los Angeles, it's just a very, very, very fascinating account of like. And brilliantly told narrative of like um, how a city becomes its way um, and becomes the way it is in in like a state of raw capitalistic greed right because you know it's famously a city that's focused entirely on cars and driving and and you know it's notorious history of police brutality and like corruption around water supply and things all interesting sort of things so city of courts was just it was given to me by my dear friend. who was my roommate at the time. this an American guy who grew up in Los Angeles. So it was like, uh, I guess for <laughs> a lot closer to, to his heart than mine, but, um, I just, uh, it was just absolutely engrossing. Um, mm-hmm. it, w- it was 20 years ago when I read it, so I probably couldn't give you any, any more specifics on it, but it was just this, um, uh, breathtaking history of a city in, in the sort of lens of, of anti-capitalist pro worker, uh, dialogue and it was just it was just really exciting because there was no theory right it was just Mm -hmm. like a a, just like let's actually look at horrible practice in um in context uh, and see what it develops and it was it's great it's Mm -hmm. it was it's an amazing book
0: you're really good at making me want to read these books um i grew up outside los angeles in southern california um we were driving distance but it was like kind of far it was like an hour um So I've been a lot of places in Los Angeles and I don't know the history of Los Angeles. So I would love to read that book. Um, It's funny, this year, uh, the Barbie movie came out. I think I (laughs) mentioned this on our podcast that they added mountains to Los Angeles and I couldn't tell why. Um, Yeah, and I
1: had a theory, right? Why why they did that? Yeah,
0: well, I think you were were saying they were trying to make it more of like a fantasy land.
1: Yeah, because they showed Mattel in that context. So I think they were like, Mattel's like, you can feature us in the movie, but it has to be like purely fictional, like as fictional as humanly possible. Yeah. And so like, well, we'll just put mountains in the background in LA and that, that does it right there.
0: Yeah. Um, yes, so my next book, let's see, in chronological order, um, that would be uh, The Language of Emotions and this book is not a well-known book i think every person who is going to therapy should read this book it's written by a i think she's um more of like a spiritual practitioner i don't know if she's like a reiki practitioner but she basically is just like i never understood humans as a kid but i spent a lot of time with animals and Especially when animals would be dying, um, I would be there with them. I would watch the way that they would, like, take their last breath and how accepting they were of just all of the different experiences that they were going through. Um, and she just talks about, she starts there, and then she goes into um, the, the theory behind emotions that she has, which is essentially that all emotions have a function that they're a critical part of our intelligence um she talks about iq versus eq um, emotional quotient or whatever and that um when humans don't have their emotions they don't have their logic either Um, Hmm. and so she really presents emotions as a vital, vital part of our intelligence and our ability to navigate our world. So she starts there by completely validating all emotions. And then she goes through each emotion. She goes, here's sadness. Here's what sadness is for. Here's what sadness feels like. And there's just several pages on like, anytime you've ever felt sadness, what was going on? How can we validate that? How can we understand it? And how can we work with it? Um, There are Mm. lots of exercises in the book for grounding practice, for protecting your energy, for working with that emotion. Um, She teaches you how to call on certain emotions in order to use the energy of that emotion. She says all emotions are our energy in motion. Do you need to call on your fear? Do you need to call on your anger? Can you call on your healthy sadness? Um, And it just basically is like, no, you were this. All of this was built into you and it was for a good reason and you should use it. Mm. Um, And I really needed that as someone who suppresses their emotions and sees them as getting in the way of everything, especially getting in the way of my logic.
1: Yeah, there is like, there is like, especially with the growth or explosion, or now I guess mainstream existence of cognitive behavioral therapy, and it seems like the central thesis of CBT is like, emotions are just sort of an after effect of your thoughts, right? Which is, we've talked about this in the past, where I really, this is my biggest issue with CBT in general, is the idea that our emotions are just mere, a mere like, uh reaction or bo- bodily reaction to the thoughts that you know are in the back and i've never thought that way right and i do like this idea and i find some like you know buddhist texts are good at capturing this uh that they're that your emotions are there to, to tell you something you know they're there it's like your body communicating with you in some way and I, I think that's like a much more useful useful analogy so yeah that book sounds good i agree with that
0: she also works with like how confused people are about what it is to feel an emotion. So people Mm. like me who have a lot of problem with anger, I was not taught how to be angry. I was only taught how to suppress anger and like anger is not a thing that you show. And she was like, okay, so there is um, introversion, right? Of emotion, like to stuff down, to suppress emotion. There is to express emotion, to outwardly be angry at somebody, right? And Mm -hmm. then there is to feel the emotion, which is a different process, right? To allow it into your body, but not outwardly reacting to it. That's a different thing, right? And what she says is we can feel our emotions. We don't have to be expressive with our emotions to be healthy feelers of emotions. Um, Yeah. And all this is just like natural-ass stuff that we would have learned if we were in a society that respected emotions in the same way that like, Um, you know if we were in a society that suppressed exercise (laughs) but none of us would know how to exercise you know it's just it's literally um, it's very cut and dried with her but she is um, uh, she's kind of a magician and everybody that has read that book comes away from it um, I think really uh, changed by it so
1: what's the title again
0: (laughs) the language of emotions by Carla McLaren the
1: language of emotions okay yeah Um, Um, yeah because for me, like when I feel anger, my problem is like, you know, yes, I feel it here, but my anger also wants to live in my mouth, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it wants to come out. And so this is always a thing, like, cause there's, that's a, that's a Buddhist trope as well. Right. If you didn't read any books by Tish Nhat Hanh, he says the same thing, like sit with your anger, like hold it like a new, like a mother would hold it, a newborn baby, not to patronize it, but you know, just mm-hmm. like allow yourself to feel it. And it's like, But the anger sometimes doesn't want to feel itself in here. It wants to like Like come out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's what the anger is. Literally. It's like, there's no difference, you know? So I find that nuance really Mm. difficult to navigate because Mm. oftentimes when I feel like I'm angry and I have to get out of a situation because I know I'm not going to be able to control what I say. And some people are like, no, that's not good. You've got to be here with it and communicate through your anger. And I also don't know if I a hundred percent believe that either, but it's a tricky one, that emotion.
0: I haven't figured out anger quite yet, um, especially not healthy ways of expressiveness. Which there are healthy ways of expressiveness, um, like yelling into pillows and like going to disaster rooms where you can just destroy things with hammers. things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would, I would love to do one of those. Um, but <laughs> usually, the way that I do it is like, okay, this is a messenger. It is bringing me a message. And in the book, she says all anger is doing is boundary setting. Please set a boundary. That's why I'm getting angry. Um, so now whenever yeah. I feel angry I know that I need to set a boundary up to the point where it's not going to make me angry anymore and I don't have control over everything in the world like there's just a limited amount that I can do that I can usually do it in my relationships pretty effectively yeah so uh,
1: yeah I mean I I feel like I'm better than I was 10 years ago that's objectively true uh, but again it's like parenthood is a whole other Whole other lotus flower of anger and like different yes. flavors of anger it's like and you have to be really careful because it's one thing to be get angry angry at another adult uh, and like when your kids are involved you have to be so careful you know how you express yourself so yeah
0: um
1: all right so i guess you want another book for me yes. uh, um so i'm going to go with uh this is a bit dry but it still was a hugely life-changing hugely life-changing and important book for me which was uh Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And um, I can't remember where I heard about this book. But the reason why it was so important for me is because at the time I was writing, I was a sports writer, weirdly enough, for a pretty well-known media, like it was, uh, it's called The Scores, like this media, it was a TV station uh, based out of Toronto. And my job was like, I had to, I was just a blogger. This is back when like blogs could actually draw people to websites and they were semi-important. So yeah. I had to write something like it was an insane amount like I had to write six <laughs> posts a day it was all on contemporary news like reactive stuff like get it out there fast 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 and my vertical was soccer so i had to do all the soccer stuff but you know you were other call things it, to write about
0: you guys call it soccer in canada too
1: well we try to be pretentious about it so if i'm with friends i'll call it football but yeah i i, I like that used to matter to me 10 years ago it doesn't matter to me now i don't so, so like, but if you if meet it,
0: someone on the street in canada they'll call it soccer they'll know what that is
1: Yes, Okay. 100%. If you Ooh. if you call it football here, they're equally as confused. I okay. are talking about, gridiron. So grit
0: interesting.
1: Um, okay. Anyway, so the point is, uh, so I was doing this job, and uh, I was running out of things to write about, right, that, it, that, that just aren't boring. So I thought, because the friends of mine who I was writing with at the, the score at the time were really knowledgeable on the analytics, like data analytics side of their sports. That was like the nascent thing, right? So this is like, even before Moneyball came out, uh, people knew about, Moneyball in the Oakland days. And this was the whole thing about can we use data science to like get an edge in sports. And um, so I got really interested to understand that in a soccer context and no one else was doing it at the time. So I became like this kind of famous guy, Um, like even overseas in Europe, I was like known as like the guy who wrote about this stuff and sort of compiled it together. And so, um, so I was just getting into that stuff when I started reading this book by Daniel Kahneman, who's like a Nobel prize winning, behavioral economist and and what um, the reason why the book was so relevant to me is because uh, it was using statistic like basic statistical science and data science, like really basic stats uh, to um, take on all these um, like thinking errors that we run into all the time so the reason why the book is called thinking fast and slow is he said there's a way that human beings think immediately you know, when we ask to make basic judgments at the world and most of the time it's fine. But the thing is, if we rely on these basic judgments to tell the entire truth about the situation, we're going to get into problems. And that's where he talks about the importance of system two. And that's where things like statistics and like Bayesian statistics, which is like understanding how to like understand averages and things. It's all it gets very, this is why I'm saying it's a bit dry, but the book is just so well written and so accessible and so exhaustive and constantly mind blowing and interesting. And I found out all these things about, you know, uh, misunderstandings that we make about the world just based on our inability to understand statistical science. And it was just, it became profoundly useful to me as a writer in this area. And so it was like literally having, you know, the veil taken off my eyes and, and understanding errors that people make in making judgments about sports and certainly soccer in particular. And so I began writing articles just based on the ideas that I would get from this book. And I, and that really propelled, that was hugely important because it kind of propelled my star Mm. among, you know, this very nascent soccer analytics scene um, and kind of was my bread and butter for like a good solid seven or eight years after that as a freelancer as well. So But just to say, I mean, that's why it was important to me in my life. But I think anyone would benefit from reading that book. Um, And that,
0: that, uh, it sounds like that book is what all the airport books were trying to be in the 2000s, like Blink and Freakonomics and Nudge and like all the like economists and behavioral economics people that were like like daniel pink and like uh, i read a lot of those books and um my favorite podcast now tears them apart all these books that i loved um
1: so it's i'm glad you mentioned that because there are some important caveats to mention so the person that i i don't remember the title of the book it's on my shelf somewhere I'll find it later um so Dan Ariely right was like I read his book he co-authored a book before and and Dan Ariely and uh I read that book too what was it
0: called uh it was
1: like predictably something like predictably uh, irrational
0: I read that book too that's the one Mm -hmm. predictably
1: irrational so I read predictably irrational before I read thinking fast and slow and the airport book that is like predictably rational classic airport book right like has everything and there was this whole genre of books coming out at the time that were all like behavioral economics is like the coolest most interesting important study but and the the, what made Daniel Kahneman's book better and much like much better in my opinion was that because he's a much drier professor in many ways he didn't have this hang up about pop, pop sociology or pop economics he's just like I'm just gonna like do my like do my best as a decent PhD professor to explain these concepts in a way that I think anyone could understand. Oh. And so he cites, he cites actual studies. He cites things that happen. He doesn't use these annoying introductory stories. He only does it when it's actually relevant to the subject matter. Now, all of that said, it's important to say that Dan Ariely has been disgraced because he's like been accused of making up these studies, making up false really? data. Or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, and also interestingly enough, even though Daniel Kahneman, a huge chunk of his book is like kind of making fun of sociological studies for feeling to be reproducible, right? Like, so you get these groundbreaking studies about human behavior that they later find out are completely Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. non-reproducible. But his, some of his studies, like I think some of the ones on them, because he's famous for doing work in uh, loss aversion studies, which is that this important concept in economics that it's actually, um, it's more people. It's more important for people not to lose money than it is for them to gain money. Mm-hmm. Like that is a core foundation of behavioral economics. But even some of the studies that that work was based on, uh, and anchoring and stuff themselves have been shown to be non-reproducible. So there are some. It's important to understand that like time has changed. I'm not saying don't read the book. It's still it's still really good, and there's still a lot in there that's absolutely true. But Um, There is some controversy now in that field since then. So just a small caveat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love debunking podcasts and uh, yeah, so many of those sort of behavioral studies have been sort of debunked. There's a lot of cherry picking of data. There's a lot of like, I guess there's just a lot of egregious statistical practices across all disciplines. Um, And yeah, there's a lot of debunking to be done. Uh, there, I'm not a good debunker, but I really enjoy it. Anyway.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to read I'll the book. will just say on on that score, it's really interesting. Like uh, this is a book that I won't mention, but it's also deeply important to me in my life, which was um, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Anti-Fragile. Now Nassim Nicholas Taleb oh. and Daniel Kahneman are kind of like buddies uh, a little bit, uh, but uh, Taleb is like way more iconoclastic and acerbic and like gets in trouble constantly for trashing mm-hmm other writers as being stupid like constantly Mm -hmm. gets in trouble for this anyway his whole thing he hates he thinks sociology a lot of it's a fraud and he talks about this thing called the ludic fallacy which is people trying to make inferences about human behavior from these sociological experiments that eventually like essentially involve like games more or less like uh like how people play certain games or like and um and he just i think he rightly points out that you can you can't always extrapolate dictums about how human beings behave from these like very contrived psychology psych you know psychological studies right um so anyway yeah I'll also put in a small plug for anti-fragile in there he's a lot harder to you either love Daniel Kahneman or sorry uh Nicholas Taleb or you despise him so interesting uh, read at your own risk yeah
0: I love how none of these authors you're uh referencing I've read any books from so this is a (laughs) new experience for me um my next book is a book called Power Versus Force. Uh, This is probably the most um, controversial book that's on my list. Uh, The reason it's controversial is the person who wrote it uh, is very into kinesiologic testing, so muscle testing. Um, And there are people who think that That's useful in some contexts and not in other contexts. Um, But the actual text of the book is just literally like, here's how to operate in power. Here's here's how to operate not against the grain in life, which is a super abstract concept and super helpful. Um, Anytime I'm in anxiety, I will open this book and just read literally any part of it. And it just says very plainly, like, Here are a bunch of examples from history, um, a bunch of, you know, uh, anecdotal examples of how people act when they're um, acting in force. So. He he writes that this is why social movements often work, um, grassroots movements, because. They're operating from uh, essentially spiritual principles. So essentially something that has infinite power, like um, collaboration and love. That is an endless resource. Love itself is energizing. Um, Versus like governments or forceful organizations, um, military conflict that's acting from force. So it's literally acting from a rule system or something that is just like a decree. Somebody has bossed them into doing something. Um, and those ways of, of um, enacting uh, of conflict don't work because they're not in themselves energetic. So I know that's a really um, abstract concept, but there's a lot of just like, yeah, this is why Gandhi was able to be one indian man that essentially defeated the british empire um this is why movements work this is why Hmm. um, they are powerful they're intrinsically powerful and if you operate in these principles um, you will use power versus force um
1: how does the kinesiological testing connect to all this that's very curious to me
0: so the kinesiologic testing um in this book, he also has sort of like a vibration of all human emotions. So he actually lists them from lowest to highest vibration. And he has like a middle, like a midpoint where he says, above this uh, above this emotional state, you're operating in neutrality to power. And below this, you're destructive to your body. So in the destructive um, part, it would be like anger or guilt or fear. All these are destructive Mm -hmm. to the body, not to say that they're not natural processes. Um, And the way that he ranks these is he says, there is a universal um, consciousness that is responsive in the universe anybody can access it and the way that we can access this is through muscle testing so we can ask a yes or a no question if the answer is no the person will test weak if the answer is yes the person will test strong um he does this for rating all kinds of things and he literally just asks yes or no questions in order to get in once he gets enough yeses then he can rank things he can categorize things he uses it for all kinds of different things
1: Hmm. what's the
0: title of this book again power versus force power Um, versus
1: force interesting
0: he's written a lot of books uh he wrote i think like 20 books in his lifetime um this is his most uh well known his second most well known is one called letting go um he's a very spiritual person i think uh he is one of the more enlightened spiritual teachers that I've seen, his name is David Hawkins. Um, and any, any time, like he did a lot of, um, public speaking events. And anytime I see him public speaking, I'm just very, um, inspired by it. And he has this way about him that just like kind of quells my anxiety. Um, so Hmm. I go back to this book all the time to remember sort of how to operate in flow rather than operate in forcefulness, um, he has a section of the book where he talks about all, all different, like, there's like 50 different principles, and there's like opposites to them, but they're things that we see as the same. Um, I'm trying to think of literally one. I wrote them all down at one point. Um, yeah, I can't remember any of them. That's funny. Hmm. But uh, yeah, that is it's a book that I have trouble talking about because it is like more out there, I think, and maybe more difficult for people, but it's, it's just one of the most useful books I've ever read. And so if anybody is um, attracted to that kind of stuff um, outside of the stuff that he has been um, criticized for, I think that it's, it's still just super useful if you're creating a movement, if you're looking for more flow in your own life, like the, basically the ways to operate so that you don't um you don't act against the flow of the universe that's as best as good as i can say it
1: hmm. interesting yeah. interesting i have a soft spot for that kind of stuff sometimes yeah. i read it a little more critically but uh
0: listen to yeah. him talk i would look up his youtube videos he's dead now he's he's quite dead um he oh. died in <laughs> 2010 he was and he was very old when he died um mm. He was writing a lot in the early 90s, but I would look up one of his like two minute YouTube clips. Um, he has a lot of them out there and see if you enjoy his talks. And that would be a good mm. way to like intro yourself to him. Oh, interesting. Yeah. David Hawkins. I guess I got
1: to go next day. Yes. Uh, so I'll do, uh, I was debating whether to go back to fiction. I'll stay, I'll stay in nonfiction for, for now. But uh, this one was, was I, I read relatively recently. So we're now more or less caught up Um um and this book truly was like reading someone who i felt you know sometimes you read a book and it's like you read it at the right time and it's like you found your person you found someone who like speaks to some long held truth that you didn't even know you had inside you and like anyway and i mention him all the time on tiktok so people are probably sick of me talking about him but um uh, this is the origins of unhappiness by uh, david Smale. Hmm. and so he's the he's the guy he's a british psychologist and essentially he's like, he's, he criticizes the entire edifice of psychotherapy and uh, essentially says the only useful part of psychotherapy is the one-on-one sort of relationship or friendship between the psychologist and the patient. And he criticizes all these methods of psychology primarily because they don't address the core issue is it, in that a lot of our, co- the causes of our distress are not in our control are, are like what he calls the relations to distal powers. So these are obviously like powers of economy and 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 politics and things that are feel like removed from us, they're very tertiary, but they seep into our lives and they have a direct influence over our lives in ways that we might not be able to be cognizant of. Um and at the time when I read this book, and this was probably about three or four years ago, and I think I read it because um uh is it Max Fisher or Mark Fisher? I can never remember. I think it's Mark Fisher who wrote um, you know, that book about uh, how there's nothing like we can't escape capitalism or whatever. I can't remember what that book was called. Anyway, one of his favorite writers was Smale. So I thought, all right, that's interesting. And then I read this book and not only is it, again, extremely accessible, but it was just like, oh my God, it was like a relief. Like I got really emotional reading it because Mm -hmm. it was just, I had gone through years and years and years of this frustration of like, you know reading about cognitive behavioral therapy reading about various variations of cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness meditation and and um and i just kept falling on this thing of like this isn't really getting to the core truth of i think where a lot of mental distress comes from and i know this is controversial because you know you, um i don't know why people get reactive to this but I think people want to point to the fact that, like, obviously anxiety and depression are not entirely matters of what's going on outside the body. But, like, when I see these initiatives that talk about wanting to pinpoint the biological underpinnings of anxiety or depression as if these are genetic mutations or, like, some underlying biological disorder, as opposed to, like, the fact that we live in this really oppressive state society you know and and the fact that no one in psychological circles will ever talk about this fact and just smell like talking about this in 1993 which is when he wrote that book um was just like it was i just felt i felt really emotionally relieved you know because it was just like finally reading someone who had spoken to a truth that i didn't quite hadn't quite articulated yet but had been sort of holding on to for a while so that that book is very dear to me Uh, and it was one of the few books that I've read, you know, as a, as an older person because I think I read them when I was in my late 30s, maybe I was 40, Mm -hmm. that I still felt like, oh, like I'm, this is like a new thing, this is Mm -hmm. new and exciting and good to, to sort of think about this stuff differently. So, so yeah, that book is definitely on my list.
0: It sounds like it gave you a validation that you needed, which is just, um, hey, this is really hard and to some extent it's out of your control and under the current conditions we should be expected to have anxiety and depression that's actually natural um
1: yeah but it it was also like i think it was also really important because it was a very frank critique of the fact that none of the sort of approaches to psychology and approaches to anxiety or or depression or or whatever that none of them or very few of them took into account this social factor. Right. And and that was really important to me. And it was like, Oh yeah, they don't at all. Right. Like it's all on in the individual. Like uh, you have to reframe your thinking, right? Like this is a great thing of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapies. Like your thoughts are the problem. You just have to question your thoughts or push back on your thoughts. And this sort of neo-stoicism that's all about like, um, you know, uh, you only feel about as bad about the world as you choose to, you know, and it, all of this felt very trite. It felt very, like, very surface and, and and didn't really speak to me to, like, something fundamentally true about what it is to be a human being living in the world. So mm-hmm. uh, so I just thought that was, like, such an important, needed perspective on things that I just was not seeing in my day-to-day life. And I still don't really see, to be honest. Yeah. Like, TikTok is just a stream of, like, help yourself advice. Um, it's a lot easier to make anyway.
0: money. It's a lot easier to make money on... <laughs> On tips, then, uh, hey, there are no tips. So, yeah, exactly. that makes sense to me. The book that really did what, for me, what you're describing is The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. So, that's my yeah. uh, honorable mention. It's a really good book. Um, was that your last book?
1: I guess so. I, I was going to say I have an honorable mention as well, which was uh, The Information by Martin Amos. And Martin oh. Amos is a slightly controversial author because he's a uh, He's a bit uh, ornery British man with some chauvinistic beliefs. Nice. Um, like he was very close friends with Christopher Hitchens, uh, which, you know, could, <laughs> could be a red flag for some people. But uh, that book, that I mean, I had no interest in writing fiction ever in my life until I read that book. And not that I could ever approach the brilliance of Martin Amos, but it was just the, the, uh, uh, just the level of fun in that writing and just like, just what he did with the written word was just so attractive to me that there was a part of me that was like, Oh man, I really want to see if I can do this too. You know, I've, I've never gotten to that level. But
0: what is that book uh, about?
1: Mar- it's about ironically enough, it's about a failed writer. <laughs> it's no! very funny. Yeah, his name it, it might also be because the main character is Richard as well, Richard toll mm-hmm. Uh but it's this, it's this um yeah, it's this it's this failed writer whose whose friend you know gets famous writing absolute trash and and uh it's it's a satire it's just very funny it's Mm -hmm. extremely funny book um but it's just it's just uh it's just so well written it's just it's hilarious it's it's just an extremely enjoyable read so that was my honorable mention as well
0: very cool um yeah my mouth is full of peanut butter toast um Mm -hmm,
1: as it should be good i'm just chewing i have to fill fill this dead air with something well this is good so you've got psychology on the one hand and a mishmash of like pretentious literature and uh dry (laughs) statistics books on the other so we've covered the spread here
0: i feel like we have a good mix it's telling to me that every book that i included has some spiritual aspect to it that's a very big part of me um the last book is probably the least spiritual book, and it's the most recent book that I've written that I've read, um, and it is *Emergent Strategy*. Have you heard of it?
1: Yeah, I have heard of that book.
0: Yeah, um... very um, inspired by the work of Octavia Butler, who's um, a science fiction writer who has really gained a lot of um, a lot of respect recently. I feel like i don't know enough about octavia butler but i would say um she's gaining more steam now than she ever has um and a lot of her books were written in like the 90s and 2000s um in a similar way that bell hooks has gained a lot of Mm -hmm. um like posthumous um interest yeah, everything written by bell hooks feels like it's written now and it's written in like the late 90s and uh, earlier than that so yeah this book emergent strategy was inspired by the work of octavia butler um that's it's all science fiction and emergent strategy is ostensibly a nonfiction book but it's very adhd and like the way that i would describe this book is just like what if all of my ADHD thoughts that were good were written down in a book and like literally not organized? Um, So it's just very, um, it reminds me a little bit of reading Virginia Woolf where I remember I would bring um, like Mrs. Dalloway to my English teacher in high school and I'd be like, what's going on with this punctuation? And he would be like, she was very experimental. So um, that was his answer. So, um, yeah, this book has just like block quotes now and then in it. And then it'll be a list of like, here's a bulleted list of how to work with, um, large groups. Um, here's something that happened to me when I was trying, when I was late for something like, it just like, it does have structure. Um, but it's structure is so weird. Uh, it's like, what if, and, and it's really about community organizing. It's about hmm. um, mutual aid, and it this, this person, um, Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote it, uh, has been an activist for a long time, has worked with a lot of um, uh, BIPOC organizations, and is really about, like, grassroots organizing um, for some political reasons, but also for just, like, human reasons, um, and so she speaks from a lot of experience, um, and the book just says, like, if humans were mycelium like what root parts would we have of our organizations like we would have the microbial level we would have the cellular level and it's like the cellular level is this the microbial level is this and that's this, this why i'm saying it's so abstract um, but it really does get to the point point. and how is this related at all to octavia butler the, um, author is like, I read Octavia Butler and I learned, um, how, how creative I could be, how I could organize things. And it really, she says a bunch of shit and then just draws a line through it in the most beautiful way. And it's like such a page turner and I can't even tell Mm -hmm. you what it's about. Um, (laughs) and it's essentially about how do we organize people? How do we have groups of people that are like um, self-sustaining? So um, let's not have groups of people that have one leader who's a rock star and then the group disbands once the rock star dies. Um, There's a lot of like, this is what happened with the civil rights movement. Um, So yeah, fantastic book. I'm not even through it. Um, I read it in a very ADHD way, which is just like I kind of skip around and like I pick it up at random times. Um, but it really hits a spot for me that no other book really has and part of it is Hmm. its creativity and its ability to be like this is what I want to talk about now it doesn't really go anywhere else but
1: yeah I've heard of this book and I've seen it mentioned on social media but I haven't I haven't taken a deep dive
0: it's big with people uh that are of my kind so neurodivergent people people who live in intentional communities it's very um just community oriented it's about cooperation rather than competition it respects all people as individuals and equals and tries to speak to people's like uh uniqueness as their strength um so it's just a really good uh like foundational book for anyone who wants to do activism i would say
1: hmm that's cool yeah i'm into this book i'm like looking at it now even yeah. this is the one that i feel like i'm gonna i'm like
0: i might, I might all, just buy it
1: after this podcast
0: <laughs> yeah of all yeah. the books that you suggested i think i'm probably going to read city of Quartz first
1: yeah you should you absolutely should you would it's 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 still extremely prescient like uh and it, it's very accessible and and he's great i mean he's he he was like a, an actual like he was a he was a truck driver and like went on mm. strike and and yeah he's, he's, he's he's the real deal he's great yeah he's a real community intellectual i would say
0: and then probably thinking fast and slow will be the second one yeah so i really like um the work of michael lewis i really liked michael lewis's podcast so i like a lot of like statistical i don't find uh michael lewis to be a huckster like the other ones Uh, a lot of the other Mm -hmm. airport book people um i don't know if Moneyball is considered an airport book or not now but i i've followed it it for a long time yeah
1: it definitely is um he's a bit of hot water though for writing a semi uh fluffy not interrogative biography of some asshole billionaire. So really I don't know that I have only kept one eye on it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm on blue sky a lot. So I I've been mm. seeing a lot of people dunking on, on Michael Lewis. But
0: yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if every like man over the age of I don't know 45 or 50 is gonna come out with some problematic stuff around like yeah. misogyny. Um, because that's just where we're at. We're doing a lot of work with misogyny right now. And it's funny um, we watched Beetlejuice. I have a, a weekly um, movie night here at the house, uh, and our community watches a movie. We chose Beetlejuice. Incredibly misogynistic. Don't don't watch anything from the eighties if you're not ready for misogyny. Um, yeah, like you really from the two thousands. I mean, really?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Beetlejuice's characters. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a little much.
0: Ugh.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We're getting off topic but uh yeah i'm excited to have some more books to read um also i'll just throw in uh, the uninhabitable earth um climate change book i don't know if uh it, it was written in 2020 uh i think and i don't know it just really satisfies my need for disaster i know we've talked about that before like how in a way like the pandemic felt good kind of like in that way where it's like oh like i'm kind of enjoying hearing about the earth burning up so this is just basically like what will happen in 100 years and 200 years what will that look like let's project out the science let's go detailed and is written by a very good um new york times columnist i thought he was very thorough um david wallace wells so um yeah the audiobook is also narr- narrated by him and it's just a fun it's just a fun read to hear about the the disaster of the world. So the unmanageable. Yeah, letters. I
1: don't have that in me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I don't need another reason to wake up at four a.m. and yeah, cold sweat. So
0: yeah, yeah. There you go. All right, sir. Um, yeah, it was fun. I'll talk to you next time. I hope you have a good day. You too. All right. Bye. Bye.